Empire of the Sun. Suns. Empire of the Suns. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Arizona Sports presents the Empire of the Suns podcast. Empire of the Suns. Hello there, and welcome to the Empire of the Suns podcast. My name is Kellen Olson, joined as always by Kevin Zimmerman. Hello, virtual friend. Hello. Some things never change. Uh, we're doing this because of schedules are hard to just get two people in the same room, apparently. But we're here. We're going to get it done. Yeah, and I can't spend an hour off the toilet, I guess, right now with this stomach bug I've got going on. There's your TMI for the day, everyone. You're welcome. Anyway. Uh, let's talk about the Phoenix Suns, shall we? Uh, they've lost three games since we last podcasted. They have lost five games in a row. Uh, we have not discussed either New Orleans game or the Houston game. We will briefly talk about the New Orleans game just because of the rivalry stuff that kind of built up there. But then also just the form the team is in right now. It's, it, it's obvious it's the worst form they've been in this year. Devin Booker hasn't looked like himself at all. We talked about that and then in the New Orleans game. For the first time in that first in that fourth quarter, you saw some physical um, indicators that he wasn't doing right physically. It wasn't just something else. Uh, and then he comes out with left hamstring tightness, misses two games. We were recording this on Thursday night, about two hours before the Clippers game. He is listed as available for now. Uh, DeAndre Aiden's out. Uh, he sprained his left ankle, I want to say, against Houston and, and was questionable coming into this game. Campaign is out. And that was a weird injury because I watched it back and either he rolled his foot or something while he was like backpedaling on defense, or it was just something that like kind of kicked in randomly. Cause on the broadcast that I saw when I was watching him in his last minute played against Houston, he looked fine. And then all of a sudden on defense, he was just grabbing at his right foot a lot. And then, and then he, he was ruled out uh, at, at the halftime of that game. And it was just another disastrous finish. Um, and they're just in really bad form right now. And, and the injuries are piling up while it's happening, which is obviously concerning. But we're going to start with New Orleans. It's it's kind of old news at this point, but we do want to hit on that just because, Kevin, we kind of talked about it during the playoff series. And then I wrote a piece prior to the first meeting back on October 28th about like how there's kind of a brewing rivalry here. And the way that Monty and DeAndre broke it down is that because they're so similar as teams, it just seems like it, it leads to more chippiness and more physicality. And kind of all of that came to a head in, in Zion's first game against the Suns since the playoff exit. And I don't know how you felt about watching that, but even in the first half, you and I, as, as basketball fans, I think a lot of people listening share this. Like We've seen a lot of Zion Williamson play basketball over the last couple of years because he's just one of the most interesting athletes to watch right now, let alone basketball players. Not usually an emoting kind of guy, Kevin, but mm-hmm. even in the first half of that game, he was he was talking. And you could tell that that game meant a lot to him specifically. And yeah, just what, what did you see from a physicality perspective and just from the way New Orleans really seemed to, uh, not only on the court, but obviously with what they said afterward, kind of embrace the fact that this is an, indeed a rivalry. Yeah, I mean, I think... There's a lot of fun X and X's and O's that you can take out of that two game set and we'll see it again Saturday. Um, but for me, it really is like they're the same type of team where they're embracing that. Or you just said that. And I think Mikel Bridges even said rivalry when he was on JJ Reddit's podcast today. 
So we all know it's there, but I think they're the first team, not only because they match up really well against the Suns, but they're the first team who's like made it a thing, I guess. And I, I really do think it all starts with the Chris Paul Alvarado thing, which I'm in the process and hopefully tomorrow will finish. Everyone probably knows, but I'm just trying to put together like a timeline basically of hey, there are a lot of little things here. And just between those two guys, like, I I think from a son's perspective, maybe I shielded myself or I just forgot because I have a bad memory. I don't know. Um, or not even I shielded myself. Like, son's Twitter doesn't bring it to attention, but I saw some Pelicans guys I follow, and they brought up all the times Chris Paul, you know, kicked him in the groin um, on a, you know, trying to draw a foul. Um, there have been elbows thrown about and there was an elbow thrown about at the end of the first game the other night. And that, you know, kind of brewed into, well, I guess it, it kind of just segued into the teams being separated to end the game. And it wasn't about Zion's dunk. Um, I, I know that some sons said that maybe that was unsportsmanlike, but it really was just a CP3 Alvarado thing. And when it comes down to X's and O's, that's kind of where it starts with that series last year was where Chris Paul started to show something's not right. Some guy named Jose Alvarado um, can take him out of the game or limit him. And um, we're kind of we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I think that's kind of where this stems from. And from the Suns perspective, maybe actual frustration against going against one single team. And maybe the Rockets can say that, too. The Rockets really got him, too. Oh boy. Yeah. Hopefully they don't meet the Rockets in the playoffs, Kevin. Everyone's talking about Dallas. Watch <laughs> out for the Rockets. Yeah. Uh, so CJ McCollum on his podcast, I believe just like in the last couple of minutes, ESPN put up a tweet uh, and CJ quoting is saying on the Zion dunk, it felt like he let, let out all the frustration of having to watch us lose last year and having to face the question marks of, can he do this? Can he do that? Is he going to be in shape? I agree. That just felt like a statement game for Zion in general. And, uh, so two things, there were two parts of the discourse and I kind of jokingly, but not jokingly put up Bart Simpson on the chalkboard writing. Don't let the discourse ruin a fun basketball rivalry because as usual, things like this translate horribly over Twitter. Uh, and it was just a lot of takes going in certain directions. And when you declare a take on something like this on Twitter, you have to be ready to argue it. And it was just this whole thing over 24 hours. And there were two, things that I wanted to include my take on, but I was never going to do it on Twitter in a million years, (laughs) but that's what this podcast is for. So one, a lot of people were in arms about, and I don't want to exaggerate a lot, but I saw people up in arms that Chris Paul was getting booed in new Orleans. And I think the thing to understand here is that the way that new Orleans and their broadcast specifically was talking about Jose Alvarado is that he's the player that is connected with their fan base and their city more than anyone else pretty much since Chris. Yeah. Now, is is Jose Alvarado one of the 30 best players the Pelicans have had since Chris Paul left? No. But for whatever reason, he is the top, top, not for whatever reason. We know the reasons because of the way that he plays and all that kind of stuff and just the ways he helps his team win. The way in which he goes uh, about that ignites the fan base and so for their guy, Jose Alvarado is their guy. Like, yes, Zion is their guy. Brandon Ingram's their guy. Herb Jones, they love Najee Marshall, Larry Nance, all those guys, sure. 
but Jose Alvarado is their guy. And, and for Chris Paul to play the usual Chris Paul game, he does in a way that irritates the opposing fan base on top of the fact that he kicked Jose Alvarado in the groin, I believe in game five, um, that was on like a jump shot where like the follow through of his leg hit him in the groin. And then in game six, uh, it wasn't called at the time, but on a Chris Paul drive, his elbow came across and hit Jose Alvarado right in the jaw and then busted his lip. And he Alvarado got the foul call on that. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, which which was befuddling to him. Inside of all of that, Kevin, was the talk of, okay, is Alvarado going to get him or not with the Grand Theft Alvarado move, which is when Alvarado hides in the corner after a make and then tries to steal it from behind uh, when a point guard's bringing the ball up. Chris Paul did the funny thing we expect him to do, which was saw Jose back there, pointed at him and said, like, get up the court. What are you doing? You weirdo. Uh, but then Alvarado got him in game four. And, and I, I told someone in uh, on Twitter, the only way I really contributed to the conversation was by saying me physically and just my own two cents on physically being in person for the Nuggets series, the Clippers series, the Bucks series, the Pelican series, and the Maverick series. So those five playoff series, the Lakers ones I wasn't there for, but I don't think that matters because they were at half capacity or whatever. Anyway, um, by far the most energy in the building and just like you could feel the intensity of the games um, from, from a rivalry perspective, from a budding heads perspective, it was in the Pelican series. Like the finals games obviously had the intensity and like the Western Conference finals intensity wise, it wasn't close in terms of like on the court, but in terms of how it was like not hatred, but just that level of intensity. And there was extra stuff there. It was the Pelican series by like a mile. And then yeah. in the map series, there was a bit because I think they, the Lucas special and all that kind of stuff built up how much Babs fans didn't like Booker. And then obviously Suns fans have not liked Luca for quite some time now. That's not just a dig at like the 2018 stuff. I'm just talking about the way that he plays and the way that he complains and all that kind of stuff has driven Suns fans nuts for a while now. So add all of that in together. And Alvarado says, I believe after game four, that Chris Paul is going to remember. I'm just going to make sure Chris Paul remembers my name. Like he's going to know my name by the end of this series. So then I'm in the room, Kevin, after game six and Devin Booker is sitting next to Chris Paul and Devin Booker has his FJ Crowder shirt on, which is great. And Chris is talking about some kind of sequence in the game. And then he, he does the old, the Jose Alva, 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 Alvarado. I think I was the only person in the room who understood what exactly happened until I saw Devin Booker smirk for like a half second. And I was like, oh, yeah. Devin uh, Book, of course, knows way more than I do what he's doing there. But I, I knew that was intentional at the time. And so then Jose Alvarado coming into the season says he won't even like is not even referring to Chris Paul by his name at all. So it's this whole thing that they've really built up over this time. And then we watch, we watch the end of that game uh, and see the way it unfolds. I'm assuming that Chris Paul went over there to go talk to the Pelicans bench about what just happened and all this kind of stuff. And him and Jose Alvarado getting into it. Of course they are. But then the Pelicans broadcast the game after that shows that when Chris Paul was getting back on defense for the Zion Williamson thing, he gave a little elbow to to Alvarado that hit him in kind of like the shoulder collarbone kind of area a little bit, just like a little light one. Uh, and then obviously Alvarado took exception to that. And I think that's probably where some of the conversation took place. I'm sure there are a couple of people on the Pelicans bench who saw Chris do that and were probably yelling at him for it. And, and rightfully so, honestly, like what is he doing elbowing that guy with five seconds left in the game? 
game's over. Um, it's not right for him to elbow him at any point, to be clear, but especially then. Like, like come on. Um, so to answer why is he getting booed, that's why. Um, that's why he's getting booed and not even to just use the most recent elbow as the example, but just the built up there. If there's a rivalry quote unquote uh, on this, it's, it's Alvarado and Chris more than anything else. And it's because of just everything that built up over that playoff series and how Chris just kind of disrespected him at the, at the end of it. Like I, when I was in the room again, like I was like, I thought in my head, like, Ooh, that was disrespectful. Like, but in, in a great way where it's fun and, they're they're taking shots at each other and all that kind of stuff. Like in the same way, Jose's not saying Chris's name at all going forward. I guess like that's disrespectful too. And it's just the level that those guys are at. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, can I try to play this because I have the video up and see? Ooh, if- yeah, I'm I'm just gonna try it, and if it's gonna be five seconds of silence, if not, here we go. five seconds of silence unfortunately you tried your best we really tried super Uh, nothing nothing okay you really tried your best i could go try and go find it right now but i mean it was you you realized what he was doing at the time too right yeah i remember just seeing it and i was like oh i want to tweet about this but that's like just like leading like presuming things and i know i'm right but at the same time i was like i'm not going to be the guy to start this whole thing especially when the Suns win and look like that guy, you know? So, yeah. And the weird, and this is where it's interesting from like a consuming a basketball game perspective is like at the end of this last or the first Pelicans game, when there was the elbow and the kind of bench clearing, we didn't see the elbow, which I, I don't know how the broadcasts work. Cause I think new Orleans is Bally also. I don't know if they use the same, camera people probably not i actually went back and looked at Bal- at bally sports new orleans or whatever their their tagline is they had slightly oh. different cameras and i watched it from their angle too and it was mostly the same thing you couldn't yeah. tell at all that it was mostly about chris and jose and like i'm not gonna say like it's propaganda and eddie johnson just like didn't or didn't want to say that he probably just didn't see what happened um from his vantage point but when you when you react to when we are reacting to it, we didn't see any of that, basically. And then we think, oh, they just might have been upset about Zion or there's jawing or something. But then you go on Twitter later and you realize, oh, well, yeah, that's why everything happened. And so I think you just took like 10 minutes to explain everything. So <laughs> there's see like, why I didn't tweet about it. <laughs> yeah, so there's a bit of history there. And there's, I, a lot. there's a lot. And I think when you boil it down, most of these things are really fun for um, like a, a New York Knicks fan watching the game. Um, but like kicks to the groin and elbows to the face. If we're going to say one thing's not acceptable, it's those things. And it's not Zion's dunk. And Mikel Bridges said on JJ Reddick's podcast, it's not Zion. Zion's dunk wasn't like a big deal at all to him. So yeah, I mean, that's why people don't like Chris Paul and that's why this is gonna uh, keep being a thing. It is. And, and I'm, I'm really excited for it. Campaign was the only guy I saw Dwayne ranking get quotes from who was actually speaking out against Zion's dunk. And he just like went the sportsmanship route, but DA was like, I don't care. Uh, I don't think Chris Paul even spoke on it one way or the other. Monty said he didn't really care. Uh, and then Mikel today said he didn't really care. Uh, hey, guess what, Kev? I don't care either. 
Um, that's my second thought. It's a lot quicker. Uh, hey, get back on defense if you don't want him to dunk. Hey, understand what it is, which is the guy giving a 360 windmill to the fans in attendance at the end of the game. And if you don't want him to be in a position to have a 360 windmill to send home fans happy, have him do the 360 windmill when he's down 20 instead of up 20. Yeah, and and I think I tweeted after the game. You should be offended by all the other dunks he got where the defense was bad. There wasn't help. You're just I, – I know it's Zion, but – The possession you posted where they were just standing there, like that defensive possession, that's what you guys should be upset about more than anything else yeah. by far. A couple minutes left, I think, chance to win it, and you just don't play your best defense, and it's an effort or communication thing, and it's just things that we haven't seen this team do. It's been a theme of that, Kevin, uh, for sure. And, and and I think something that I really want to focus on here and something that I kind of loosely tweeted about a couple of games ago is something to watch is the defensive trend of this team right now. And it's kind of going under the radar. And I wanted to start with that instead of having the Chris Paul conversation that we're going to have here soon enough. But going under NBA.com stats and looking at every team's last 15 games. I did this like a couple episodes ago with like the last 10 to highlight how bad their defense was. Um, They're 19th in defensive rating right now when looking at every team's last 15 games. And the fact that they're nearly a bottom 10 defense right now, uh, it just adds up to their system being out of sync because I don't care if they're missing three or four key guys. Their defense should still be top 10, 15 based on the personnel that they still have with their depth and just based on the system that they have in place to their defensive capabilities. Now, if one of those guys is Mikel, I guess that's the exception to me because how on earth do you replace him? We'll get into that in a minute, more on that in a minute. But I just wanted to highlight that as well before we kind of brushed past these three games because even the Houston game, Kevin, like Michael Porter, or Michael, Kevin Porter Jr. is just getting into the chest of a dude and just driving through him. And I'm like, who, what is happening? Kevin, who is this? Yeah. Like just yeah. watching the the Suns defenders themselves. I'm not talking about Kevin Porter Jr. doing that. I'm talking about the Suns letting Kevin Porter Jr. do that to him. And I mean, I'm this is probably the last guy I should call out, but I, I don't think Mikel Bridges has been as good on defense as last season. And this is kind of his style. Like he has not ever been Marcus Smart or Tony Allen as far as like or Patrick Beverly guys who just I'm gonna shove you off your spot. I'm going to be physical with you. He's more, yeah, I'm going to let you dribble all that. I'm going to let you try to go, but you're going to get messed up if you go where my arms are. And it's a a really different style and it's not just him, but at some point you've got to have other people off the ball, messing up timing um, on the ball, not letting a point guard just walk up get into the offense, get where he wants. And then, like, obviously the screening and pick-and-roll defense hasn't been there either, but I just think it's a totality of, like, if you get a guy a couple inches from where he wants to be, if you get a guy a second off where he's supposed to hit a guy coming off a screen, that's winning defense, and you're just seeing the Suns let teams kind of just do what they want. And that's not even to mention, like, I don't think this is, this might be a bottom five athletic team from just a physical standpoint. And that's just a bad combination when you're not playing good defense, you're not talking, 
and you're already at a deficit because you don't have a lot of great athletes. Like who's a really good athlete on this team? DA, I think for a center is really good. Mikel's there. Um, but after that, it, it's kind of rocky. So I think it's a lot of things. It's hard to kind of even target like what they're bad at right now, just because it looks like from what we've seen compared to them playing good defense, it's just not even comparable, I guess. Well, the guy, the guy that is that level of athlete is Josh Akoji. And I was just about to say on the whole defense point, the way I was going to end it is though. I am one not to read into garbage time at all. And like the way he played against Dallas and the way he played against Houston and, and all these kinds of things. Right. But we're at the point defensively right now with the way that they're playing as a team where I think Monty should just start him at the four now. Um, I just think the one guy who's actually like engaged and locked in defensively and impacting the game in that way needs to be starting right now, just with yeah. the way that they're defending. And I understand the offensive limitations and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't even think the Suns are close to this. Like I'm sure Tory Craig is going to be starting tonight against the Clippers, but I really think we're there where he at least needs to be the first or the second guy off the bench right now because of the way he's defending and just no one else really is on the team right now. So I, I, We'll, we'll see on that front um, to transition more into just their overall quality of play right now. And where we'll get to Chris here in a minute, um, our Australian correspondent, David had a really good thread. He decided to do what uh, only brave men do, which is try and tweet out his actual thoughts on the situation. Even after like nine tweets, I'm sure he had a bunch of people disagreeing with him a bunch, but what I'm going to do is condense it down and um, aggregate it down to just one sentence he had that I replied to. And he said, in a nutshell, we are possibly witnessing what happens when you prioritize great fit pieces over general talent base. And I agree with his, with, with what he's saying to a point. And what I'm, what I agree with is that I, and what I responded to is like, they just have a very delicate foundation right now with how they're built as a team. And I think people are going to hear me or see me tweet that or hear me say that and think I'm talking about, oh, like the injuries and all that kind of stuff. No, because I think their depth and just their style of play and the way that they get after everything and the way that they plug and play guys, I'm not talking about the depth. I'm talking about if one of the top four or five guys on this team is substantially not providing his role, like there's a dramatic difference in the contribution he's giving as opposed to what you normally get, then you're going to see a fall off from this team. There's a reason when DeAndre is like engaged and locked in that they play extremely well as a team. You know, there's a reason why they're playing like this right now. And I think it's pretty much just got to do with Chris Paul above all else. Like that's a lot to put on just one guy right now. A lot of guys aren't playing well, but do you remember like four years ago, five years ago when we were talking about how hard it's going to be for Booker to like get in like the top 10 discussion because of how much better the 32nd player is the, the uh, 11th best player in the NBA is compared to the 32nd. Like we were talking about that and the tiers yeah. that are involved. Think about that. And when we talked about that, or if you weren't around, take that into consideration, how Chris Middleton, the difference between Chris Middleton and, and Jason Tatum is insane. Like it is, there's, there's like four or five levels there to, uh, to go up. And Chris Middleton's a really, really good player, but that's just the level of superstardom and the level of, top 10, 15, 20 players, that's the level they're at right now in the league and the way talent is um, dispersed across the league. Chris Paul was an MVP candidate two years ago. He was one one year ago until he got hurt, and then the the vote shifted on Devin Booker. He's coming off three straight All-NBA teams. He was somewhere, depending on how you feel, in the regular season, he was a top 10 to 20 NBA player. Like He just was. For, For three straight years, he was. And I understand what happened in the playoffs. I think a lot of that just changes people's 
views in, in, in a flawed way, because I think they looked down on him in a bit, but which those people ended up being right, of course, in terms of what we're seeing from Chris right now. But I think they were wrong in terms of how they viewed him and how the team is currently constructed because the drop off right now, Kevin, from uh, the ringer had him 50th or 51st in their like player rankings or whatever, hmm. something like that. And that's being generous. Like it, that's, that's a generous ranking considering who he like that's giving, um, I'm assuming they're holding weight there based on just the player that he's been in the past and expecting him to kind of bounce back here. Four games off his month off played nine. I think before that, I want to say 10, maybe, um, all of that is to say when you take someone who is one of the two or three best point guards on the planet and then get a guy who's not even top 10 in his position anymore, that is a, that there's no way to adjust to that. It's impossible. There's no way for you to, unless you've got some incredible growth from a couple of players, not even one, a couple, like you look at new Orleans last year and the way that they were constructed and how horrible their season got off to a start because they were without Zion. But then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, Herb Jones. Yeah. He's a starter. And it's like, well, yeah, the Alvarado kid can play too. And yeah, Murphy's ready for rotation minutes too. Yeah, Najee Marshall's good too. Yeah, we got Larry Nance and CJ McCollum too. You get, you get what I'm saying? Like that's the way that New Orleans made up for it. And you look at the Suns, it's like there is nothing happening there. Like Mikel and DeAndre are incrementally better, I think, but there is no other big jump. What it was before was the play of campaign, but he is he has regressed since. And and there's just nothing else that they can really do to make up for it right now. They're really lucky, Kevin, that they have a star and a superstar in Devin Booker that that's a top 10 player in the league right now because he can do what he did in the first six weeks of the season, which is keep them afloat. And by keep them afloat, I mean keep them atop the Western Conference when that point guard isn't even playing. Yeah. I, so, I think yeah, go ahead. Just two points off the kind of the depth and talent um, disparity, like – Two years ago, we were talking about, like, is Booker the MVP of this team or is it Chris Paul? Um, And I think that's a good thing to bring up when you say, okay, like, that was for a team that was in the NBA Finals. So that's, like, that's all NBA, all that stuff. So you take that out, and then it does matter when you lose – Cam Johnson and the bench rotation has gotten wacky and it's inconsistent in the last few weeks. Um, and then that really just puts a microscope on, okay, like Damian Lee's a really good player, a role player, a really good role player, but he's going to be a lot less effective if you're like, Hey dude, you got to take 15 shots for us to like have a chance against the Houston rock. Like that's just how it is. Um, and just throwing this number out there. Cause NBA University, which is a Twitter account, put this graphic up, which I assume is accurate. And it's basically about double teams, who gets double teamed at highest rate and points per possession when they're double teamed for their team. And to boil it down, Book is basically, I think he's like third in terms of perimeter players who get double teamed the most. And he's behind Luca and actually Shea. And He's also number, let's see, two overall on this, like, 15-person list. He's number two overall behind Giannis in terms of average team points per possession when double-teamed. So when he's not playing well and not doing everything to distract and make a defense focus on him and the offense runs through him so well, when he's 
passing out of those double teams or scoring on those double teams even. Um, this team has got no chance, and, and that just gives him more credit toward being that important, that dude on this team. And so when you lose him, Chris Paul's not close to what Chris Paul has been. Uh, that's where we find ourselves. Where we find ourselves is 30 games into the year. This team is 16 and 12. That's 28 games, I guess, but I'm approximating when I say that. 16 and 12 sounds fine uh, until you realize and take a look at the standings at what the NBA is right now, which is just the most jumbled up parody I would assume it's ever had at this point in the season. I remember I posted the standings about three weeks ago and I was like, we're going to have to wait until the new year starts to even have an idea of what the Western Conference looks like from like one to 12. It's not clear who's going to be where. Like, yes, the Lakers aren't going to jump to one, but we, we have no idea like who's going to be in the mix for a top four seed, who's going to be in the play-in mix still, who's going to be on that six, seven, five, six, seven, eight border and all that kind of stuff. And we're still waiting for that. But to be clear, um, both the Pelicans and Grizzlies are 18 and nine right now. The Nuggets are 17 and 10. All three of those teams have hit, have hit a stride right now. While the Suns are tripping over themselves over and over again, those three teams have really hit a stride. Uh, guess what, Kev? The Portland Trailblazers are still hanging around for now. They're 16 and 12 with the Suns. And then the Clippers, who the Suns play tonight, are 17 and 13. After that, it is the 15 and 12 Kings, the 16 and 14 Jazz, and then the 14 and 14 Mavericks. I haven't even mentioned the Golden State Warriors yet, who are 14 and 15 right below the Timberwolves, who are 13 and 15. And then we've got the Lakers, who have started to figure some things out. They're 11 and 16. They are in a position where if they don't, and and when I say figure this out, Kevin, I just mean get back to playing 500-ish basketball, get back to playing winning basketball some more. They are in a position now where if they don't do that within the next month, they could be fighting for a playoff spot, a top six spot. That's where they're at. Because if we're at the start of February and this team is 500, then they've got a half season to kind of kick it into gear and go 10 to 15 games above 500 over there and get back to where they should be, which is in a top four spot. But what I'm trying to say is I don't, I don't think this team is going to miss the playoffs. I don't think they're going to be in the plan or anything like that. I, I don't think that's going to happen still. But the fact that it's a possibility right now is something that I've wanted to reinforce in a few different avenues. I've had the chance to express it the last couple of days. And also just to put it on the table because we might be here in two weeks and be talking about how they're 500 because we don't know how, how bad these injuries are for Aiden and Payne specifically. We don't know how long it's going to take for a Jay Crowder trade because I think right now, more than any other time, you're seeing that really hurt the weight of their roster construction. We don't know if Cam Johnson is going to be back by mid-January or whenever. We don't know. So it, it, the injuries are the big thing, but if the injuries take longer, it seems like the Booker being available tonight is a good one. But if, if some of those injuries take a while, they could be in a spot where they really have to play some much more inspired basketball and great basketball to to be a playoff team, to be a top six team. Yeah, and the Booker hamstring thing, and I'm in a negative headspace, I admit, because of the Kyler Murray had a hamstring thing. Then he, you know, tears his ACL. I, I'm not saying that, but Booker had a what sprained ankle, then the hamstring. Um, and he's had that obviously a, a history of hamstring issues. So just that's why I think early in the season, him and Mikel playing too many minutes. I'm like, that makes me nervous because they, they need them so much, but also you, 
you're fighting wanting to hang in these tough standings, but also you want to be there. So yeah, it, it's going to be a lot more dicey than the last few years. I'll say that. Um, and then you get to Chris and it's like, well, we talked about they're doing a good job preserving Chris, not asking him to do too much, but then like, does he have to do too much if books not there, for example, against Houston, and he takes 17 shots. Um, so do you want to get into the Chris Paul stuff? Yeah, I mean, one last thing to justify the Chris. We've been annoying people probably with how much we've been talking about Mikel and, and Book playing, but I mean, his hamstring thing comes up in the first round last year, and that was after the dozen games he played without Chris Paul. You know, like that was only like a couple of weeks after that. And I just think that it's you, – you have to be smart with him now. You just have to be. And it's one of those situations where they need him so badly that they can only be so smart with him. But I think we've, we're have we at the point now where if you screw this up one more time in terms of just overplaying him, I'm not saying I, I hate doing this with injuries and saying it's directly on how much playing time he helped, but it couldn't have – or playing time he had, but it couldn't have helped Kevin. Like it, it certainly didn't help the situation by any means. So I, I – yeah. And and to be clear, his minutes are at 35.4 now, and that's only one up from his uh, total last year and um, to only 1.6 up from his career number. But we're seeing like the game-to-game flow of it, um, being in a position it shouldn't be in for a player like him on a team uh, like this. You wrote a story on the site uh, that I encourage everyone to read about Chris Paul's shot profile and just what has changed for him so far uh, statistically not just looking at the two bad shooting percentages and going a little bit more in depth. What'd you learn there? Um, I mean, the percentages speak for themselves. They're not good, but I think the shot distribution is the biggest thing. And so a couple numbers to throw at you, the non-restricted paint area, which is obviously just the paint minus right at the rim is he's fallen off from 60%. Awesome. Last year, to 39% now. Um, And not only that, he's taking 9% fewer of his shots overall there. Um, Only 19%, it was 28% uh, just a year ago. So bad shooting, not taking a lot. Inside the arc, but outside that paint completely. So other mid-range, deeper mid-range. He was shooting 53% last year. Also really good this year, 42%. That's basically league average. Um, But also the volume again is way down. It was 41% of all of his field goal attempts because obviously he's a mid-range dude and now it's 29. So basically generally his best shot has been the right elbow, right? So when you consider if that's in the paint or outside of it um, and everywhere else in the mid-range, he's basically taking 20% less of his shots in the mid range. So he's basically not taking it. And you can say that's his decision. I think that's very true. Our team's keeping him out of there. I'm not sure they're doing a lot right now. I'd have to go look at how they're defending him more, but basically his best shot, what has traditionally been his best shot. He's just not doing it right now, but he has replaced that with threes. And we all talked about it going into the year. That's important. I think when you look at, okay, Mikel, DA, you guys got to do more. It He's got to space the floor better, and he's not shooting well um, from three. He's just below 30%. I think that'll raise as he gets his legs under him and all that. Um, catch and shoot percentages, he's been, what, you said 44% uh, 
um, for his, for his career. career. Yeah, on low on low volume, like taking one one and a half a game. Let me see where I put this in this story. He's only on twenty nine percent, so basically the same as three point percentage overall. So it's he's trying, and I think that's an important thing to mention, right? Like if he starts hitting threes, then campaign or Cam Johnson comes back. Suddenly, that's a lot more spacing for. Mikel and DA to kind of keep growing in those roles of taking on more. And it, it really does change and book too. Like it, it changes how this team will operate offensively. Um, but then you get to the other question of this team got so far in the postseason because he would kill people in the mid range. And how often can he do that? You just can go look at a game log um, of his shooting percentages and it's erratic. It's like 16, 20% coming after 40% and it kind of goes up and down by game. And there's not really a pattern there other than it's just erratic. And I I think again, give him time, but 28 games in the season, you, you got to find out if he could maybe every four games have a mid range party, start pointing at guys and saying, bring that guy over here so I can take him one-on-one. Can he do that at all? I don't know, but that was such a big part of the Suns game and a big problem for people to solve in the postseason, And it's just not there right now and hard to see if it will come back. I've talked about this a few times, but it's exactly what you're talking about where I think people will misrepresent the conversation and think that we are saying he needs to be 14 from 14 from the field. He needs to be game six Pelicans, um, or game six uh, Clippers kind of levels. We're not saying that at all. We we're saying he needs to be in that position where he can puppeteer a game for four minutes and score seven points and dish out two assists and do the thing that I've talked about on this podcast. He does all the time. And I haven't seen him do it once in the game yet. Not once it's, it's been crazy. I, the closest they got was, I believe the first, uh, I believe it was the second Pelicans game. I want to say, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but there was like a, a a good offensive start that they had, and it felt like he was actually doing the thing where he was controlling the pace of the game, and and they need that at the very least. But then more so, just like his actual individual impact on the game beyond just providing for his teammates and doing the usual thing, and and that's where he needs to get at right now. We just haven't seen that guy at all. And the way that I wrote it after the Rockets recap, and I think people kind of mis misread it a bit. I mentioned that he's a he's made. All NBA three straight seasons. There's a big difference between making an all NBA team, making an all-star team. They need him to be at an all-star level. And once he gets there, I think they're still in business. But if he's not even at an all-star level, let alone all NBA level, there's just there's nowhere for them to really go right now. And that's where you get into the conversation that you blew my mind with last week and talking about trading him. And it's like, well, if you're in February and he looks like this still or looks a little bit better than this, but he doesn't look like an all-star. He doesn't look like a guy that's a, a top five, six, seven player at his position right now. You have to ask what, what you do with the situation right now. Do you just play it out, lose in the first round, and then dump him next year, but then use nothing with that money? Do you explore trades in February? All of this stuff all of a sudden comes to the forefront because of how dramatically his drop-off changes their title odds. It just, I don't even think their title odds should be that good right now. They're still fairly okay in a lot of different places. So Vegas at least thinks they're going to be able to figure it out to some extent, but it's just been a really um, 
his play combined with the team's play within it has just been really uh, disheartening for those in, in that like kind of headspace where you're looking at this team like a contender. It hasn't been yeah. encouraging. Yeah, and I think I, I brought up Ricky Rubio last podcast, I think, and like was he a top 15 point guard in the NBA that year? I, I don't really know when you consider like a top assist guy. Chris is going to be a top assist guy if he's in a wheelchair, but that doesn't really move the needle. I, I don't think as far as like how, how good this team is. Can it go one series deep into the playoffs? Can it win one series in the playoffs? And I don't even think he has to be an all-star. Um, I, I think he just needs to be like top 15, 12, 10 point guard in the league right now. And they'll be decent and fine. And they'll have to figure out Mikel and DA anyway. But right now, I I don't know. Is he top 20? Is he? It's just the shooting percentages are so bad that it's hard to judge that. And again, you, you expect that those come back up once he gets his legs under him. But they weren't coming up, what, the first 10 or so games he played this season. And the difficult part now is you've got this like as the elephant in the room, right? Can you make a trade right now or in the next three weeks that pretty much that changes like the identity of your team in some way with this going on? Can or should your first big move be knowing with certainty what you have from him? Because I think that kind of directly impacts it now. The reporting and all that kind of stuff that's happened the last week, people are now operating under the assumption that the Suns can't trade picks right now because a $3 billion purchase would not be a $3 billion purchase if there's not a 2026 top 10 protected pick involved, Kevin. Of course, there's the logic there. Maybe there is actually some merit to it and just having the asset at the absolute highest value. I don't know. Sam Cooper made that similar kind of joke, and I was I was with him there where I just I really doubt it. I just think the Suns are stingy with picks and they've always been stingy with picks. They were stingy with picks under Sarver and they're being stingy with picks right now. But that's what I'm starting to wonder now is like, is this kind of situation unfolding the way that it, that it did and, and that it is right now? It doesn't put that even more on pause right now, trading Jay and figuring out what exactly you need there. And I'm not saying like you, you trade Chris in February or anything like that, but I'm just saying, okay, how big of like a big dog do you need to get right now? Because I think they they could still be under operating under the assumption like they just need like a little bit of offense from somewhere and they'll be okay because Chris will round back into form. But if you're under the assumption that you're going to not be getting all NBA level Chris Paul and you're going to be getting something either either uh, worse or far worse than them, then that has to change the way that you're thinking about doing these trades. And then you have to be like, okay, how much do we want to give up? Do we want to really hedge into this window? Do we want to think more about book and Mikel and Cam and Deandre in that window? There's like a lot of long-term questions that all of a sudden come up with this trade where it's not as simple as trade two first for Kyle Kuzma. Yeah. I think the patience is important right now for James Jones. Like I I assumed he was going to do that anyway, but I do think why I brought up Chris being traded last week was because you have to look at this and be patient and make the right choices with him. And not just like whether you trade him or not, but like what kind of piece you need in return. And I think you do need more time. And I think there is again, no rush to get rid of Jay Crowder right now. 
And this is going to go to the trade deadline. I feel like where other teams don't want to make big moves anyway um, for the same exact reasons. But I think it's naturally just going to play out over the next two months. But those two, is it two months? It's not even two months now. Um, So yeah, I I think it's going to play out and maybe mid January, we're going to have to, start talking really aggressively about how this team makes big moves. If Chris Paul doesn't look like he's improving. Yeah. We talk about the game within the game. This is like the game outside of the game. I'm not even on like a, on a a level right now on like a wavelength. That's what I was looking for. I'm not on a wavelength right now where I'm looking at this team on a, on a game-to-game basis and kind of reacting to little trends inside of there. I'm on the, when are they going to get their stuff together? When is Chris Paul going to start looking like Chris Paul? And when are these guys going to get healthy? And that's like really all I'm looking at right now. Because if it if it just, if the steer, if the ship is steered in the right direction and they're back by mid-January, like you said, then great. But if we're a month from now and it looks something like this still, like it still kind of sort of resembles a team where, you now have like doubts about whether they're going to be able to really, really put it together uh, over the second half of the season, like I mentioned. Then there's the serious conversation of where their roster construction's at and where they need to pivot. Because that's yeah. the thing. Like it'll be like a you guys need to pivot. That could be a conversation we have a, a month from now. Yeah, I mean, I think watching the game, the Pelican series, it was like, oh, why are you having like the centers guard Zion? or not guard Zion to start. And then they started putting DA on him a little bit. And then suddenly it was like, Oh yeah, this is why DA is important. Cause he can kind of like make Zion miss a few layups. Cause he's a big dude who can kind of move. And that's like the furthest thing from the important part of this. Just, but like within the game, I was thinking that, and we're not even talking about this on this podcast because there are just so many, do you call them existential questions about this team well it's more just like i think a a more simple-minded fan and i don't think they're wrong for thinking like this either but i think it would be too simple-minded to just say oh like they just need to trade for jared vanderbilt and kyle kuzma they need to trade (laughs) lander shaman dario sarge and jay crowder and a combination of picks for those two guys and then everything will be much better and i think there's there's team building principles now that are coming into play that i wasn't even thinking about two weeks ago yeah I think that's a good way to put it. You could get the scoring wing and the defense wing and feel so good. I can match up against the Clippers. I can play better against the Pelicans and match up better against them in the playoffs. But I, yeah, I'm maybe we're, maybe I'm stuck on two long-term stuff where I'm like, but when you need to score buckets, who's going to do it when everyone's just throwing everything at Devin Booker. And that's, yeah, that's where I'm kind of thinking from a, Big picture, how much of a contender is this team is? Yeah, it's it's the conversations we were having midway through the Pelican series, honestly, that got more serious towards the Dallas series, where we at the end of the Dallas series, where we see like the we see the 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 act the car crash coming, you know, and we've been just watching it in slow motion now for nine months, and we just keep waiting for it to like the car to veer the other direction, you know, and yeah. it's not going to, but the cars just keep like, they keep getting <laughs> closer. And I'm just like waiting for the cars not to. And we were, we were 
we seemed like we were there like 10, 15 games into the year. It was like, okay, regular season world beaters are back. At least like they, they have that going for them to like kind of get their, their vibe back, but they don't even have, have that to their name right now. So it's just, again, like overreactions and like where you're, you might take away certain things from this conversation, but if you're going to take anything away from it, I would, I would suggest just that we're talking about the potential for conversations like this to come up in, in four to six weeks that we weren't even considering like a couple of months ago, but it just all factors back to like questions about how the team is actually built and why it's flawed in some ways. And now that Paul is playing like this specifically, it really amplifies the discussion. Yeah. And when he starts hitting his shots and everything looks better and Cam Johnson comes back and they're running off 10 wins in a row in a few months or something or a month, Everyone will be like, why'd you have this dumb conversation? And we'll be like, well, it looked bad. I don't know. Yeah, it looks pretty bad. Yeah, it it looks pretty bad right now. And and it could look a lot more different by, I mean, even the next time we podcast, that's the thing to kind of like wrap up and close. They're scared. uh, Part of the reason, to be honest, I'm not sure if I would be having this conversation if their schedule looked easy, but their schedule's tough. And we talked about it a couple of times before at the end of the episodes uh, to the last couple of apps, but for the next six weeks, it's a challenging schedule for them. It is not easy. A lot of it is on the road, like a lot of it. And it's, it's got really tough games in there. Like Washington has fallen off a cliff. So those two games don't look as bad as they did maybe a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the wizards potentially being a surprise, but there's a lot of tough games in here and there's a lot of East coast trip. There's just a lot of stuff here where they're going to have to figure all of this out while they're playing through their toughest portion of the of the regular season schedule so like that's kind of where we can close on is just just that's the like this is more of a state of the team podcast if anything and that's just the state of the team right now like they need to seriously rediscover themselves in the next four to six weeks or it's really starting to look problematic like i guess you could say it does look problematic right now but i'm i'm not quite there yet but i'm saying i'm really close to being there, especially if we see it um, percolate more. (sighs) Prepare for the worst to look ahead, prepare for the worst. That's what we're doing. Okay. Yeah. You know, we're here. King, King vibes, vibe camps as always. Uh, So we'll let you know uh, next week what what direction I kind of we're we're heading. And, And that's the thing is like, we'll have, four games to talk about. We've got Clippers tonight, uh, New Orleans at home on Saturday. Uh, the Lakers are in Phoenix on Monday, and then it's a back-to-back. It's the Washington Wizards on Tuesday. So we'll be back like middle of next week to kind of talk about those four games and the direction we're seeing. It, Kevin, a prediction, Devin Booker being back is going to help a lot. Yeah. They're, I think they're going to look much better. Um, I'm just – the two-game absence for like a hamstring just like doesn't give me good – uh, it doesn't encourage me, but at the same time, they're they're smart with him more than anyone else, I think. So I'm sure he just needed to lay off for a couple of days, and that's where he's at. So I think I'm sure they're going to bounce back through his play, uh, but we'll have to wait and see until next week, and we'll talk to you then. Bye.